All right, so continuing our discussion of natural law. Um, so what were we saying about natural law? That nature is something that the creator has made, that we are given. That we have reason made in the image and likeness of the rational God, and our reason can look at our nature and deduce how we should behave, deduce the, the natural law that's written into our nature by the creator. Now, if we're able to know it, why is it that some people do and some people don't? Um, so, I want to break that down um, on page five. Um, so St. Thomas indicates that there are some things that everybody knows, some details that only a few people know, and some things that lots of people know. So um, let's look at how he breaks down. So page five, the precepts of the natural law. In considering how reason discerns the various precepts of the natural law, St. Thomas Aquinas' threefold division of the precepts is typically followed. So the first division, what are called the first or common precepts. And here, um, St. Thomas, as I've said, contrasts practical reason, which is about the law, with speculative reason, which is just reason, philosophy, not applied to action. So speculative reason, uh, the classic position would be the principle of non-contradiction, that a thing cannot both be and not be at the same time, a thing cannot be affirmed and denied at the same time. That is the starting point, that's the first precept of speculative reason, first principle of speculative reason. And Aristotle says if someone denies that, there's no point in having a conversation with him. Um, that, that's the starting point. And you can't prove it. That's what we mean by something being self-evident. Um, it is self-evident, therefore you can't prove it. You might point it out to somebody, but you can't prove it. So there are certain things that are self-evident that are our starting points. You can't prove, but um, any coherently functioning mind can grasp. So I've said here, practical reason is speculative reason applies to action. And St. Thomas says there are several first indemonstrable principles of speculative reason and therefore several first precepts of the natural law. So just as in speculative reason you have certain pr principles that start like the principle of non-contradiction, in the moral law there are also certain precepts that are self-evident, that you can't prove, they're just your beginning point. Like the first principles of speculative reason, the first precepts are self-evident and indemonstrable. You cannot argue with someone who denies the principle of non-contradiction. Similarly, you cannot argue with someone who denies the golden rule. So the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Um, which we have from Jesus but actually is a self-evident truth. To do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. Um, which might include not, not denying them dessert. Um, mm -hmm. Or it might include recognising that they don't want dessert and therefore not forcing it down them. Um, doing unto others as you would have them do unto you. 
These first precepts are self-evident, they are written on the heart, and cannot be blotted out of the human heart. But we can fail to observe them. So you might sin against these precepts, but you do know that they are there. You do know that they're true. And as examples of what these are, um, A and B here, A, what's called the first precept of practical reason, good is to be done and pursued, and evil is to be avoided. And St. Thomas says all other precepts of the natural law are based on that starting point. Other first precepts. St. Thomas doesn't offer a complete list of other first precepts, but he does give the example, do evil to no man. Again, that's just self-evident. Once you've defined evil, it's obvious that's what you shouldn't do to anyone. And so we might also include the golden rule among the first precepts, do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. So there's this first category, self-evident, written on the heart, everybody knows them, they cannot be blotted out of the heart, but you might fail to observe them. Now, secondary, they're what are called the secondary precepts or quasi-conclusions of the primary precepts. These, he says, are derived immediately with little consideration from the first precepts. And St. Thomas teaches that the Ten Commandments are among these secondary precepts. So if you think of the command to honour your father and mother, now that's not self-evident, but you don't need to think hard about that. Do not steal. Not self-evident, but you don't need to think hard about it. It's derived immediately with little consideration, but it does need a bit of derivation. So when our Lord is um, summing the law up and says, love God, love your neighbour, and basically that's it, is he establishing a first principle? Yeah, those would be first precepts. Um, so once, you've, once you understand what your neighbour is, then it's obvious you should love him. Um, and you might fail to love him. You might fight against someone saying it, but actually it, that's a, a self-evident truth. So you're mothering your father or your neighbour as well as you're mothering your father? Yes, but the honour you show them as mother and father... That's the extra bit. That's the extra bit, yeah. Um, Does loving your neighbour follow on naturally from loving God? I think that's a separate question from whether it's natural. I think that depends on your concept of God, doesn't it? Um, and what I'm hesitating is how much you know that connection naturally as opposed to supernaturally. So I think we know as Christians that we're in the image and likeness of God and that changes how we view our neighbour. I think you can know human dignity without knowing that humans are in the image and likeness of the Creator. Going down to apology when someone will say that being the nature of the person which is Trinitarian. But you only know the Trinity through supernatural revelation. So there are lots of laws, or a significant number, that are self-evident. 
then there's a whole lot of things that are very important that aren't self-evident but don't take much thinking about these secondary precepts or quasi-conclusions. Now, over the page, a significant comment on this. These secondary precepts can be blotted out of the human heart three ways. By evil persuasions, i.e. false argumentation, by vicious customs, and by corrupt habits. Thus the ancient Germans did not know that theft was wrong, and the Greeks accepted unnatural vices, i.e. homosexual intercourse. Um, evil persuasions, vicious customs, and corrupt habits. So first, evil persuasions. So this is bad arguments people give you. So, um, one of the examples I give in this regard, because I think it's contemporary, is pornography and a teenage boy growing up today. So, teenage boy growing up in a Catholic family today would hopefully know from his family that pornography and viewing it is wrong. But evil persuasions, his school friends, what other people tell him that, well, no one really gets hurt, it doesn't really matter, no one's going to know. Evil persuasions, and with a bit of persuasion, he no longer actually recognises that it's wrong anymore. He was able to know, but he's been persuaded and he no longer even thinks it's wrong. So it's not that he's doing it knowing it's wrong, he's been persuaded and no longer thinks it's wrong. Vicious customs. Let's take that same example, teenage boy growing up, not in a Catholic family, but in our contemporary culture. In our contemporary culture, he is taught in school that viewing pornography is a natural thing. Um, so it's not that everyone's doing it and we're doing something wrong and we shouldn't be, but that actually this is healthy behaviour for you. Um, so you grow up in a, the midst of vicious customs around you, and therefore you fail to even see that this is wrong. So it's not that the argument put to you changes your opinion, but actually the practices around you change your opinion. Yeah, so these are two different things that affect you. The third example, corrupt habits. This is maybe for ourselves the most worrying. Um, and let's go back to our, the teenage boy again, pornography. Um, he knew it was wrong, but he started viewing it. And he viewed it once and twice and again and again. And his habit of doing that clouds his intellect, clouds his thinking, until he reaches a stage where he no longer even thinks it's wrong. That his own corrupt habits cloud his intellect. So three different ways in which you can fail to know these secondary precepts that you could know. The arguments from other people, customs of those around you, and your own bad habits. 
so that you can start knowing it's wrong and end up forgetting that it's wrong or changing your mind that it's wrong. And all three of those examples, sadly. Um, so someone who's had an abortion or had multiple abortions can cloud their thinking and no longer even think it's a, a problem. Thirdly, um, proximate conclusions. So these are much more detailed stages of argument. These are derived by demonstration from the secondary precepts, um, and the virtue of prudence is needed to discern the more remote conclusions. Um, so the example I give of this is of cheating in exams. So that is not in, that's not self-evident. It's not in the Ten Commandments. Um, but um, to, to reason and deduce that cheating in exams is wrong, not just cheating in exams will cause me to get drummed out of the university, um, but that to realize it's a sin, this is a much more detailed <coughs> conclusion. And not everybody realizes it. So anyone who's studied in Rome knows that Italian nuns typically do not realize that this is a sin. <laughs> and this would be a cultural thing as well. But uh, you, can, you can see the true purposes of habits when in the exams, great sheets of things are, are removed. Um, um. It is cultural, you see. It's cultural in the Middle East and Muslim society. Yeah. Lying is, is permitted. Small lies. Yeah. And let's put that in reverse and think in our culture, pride is a normal behaviour. So the, the Englishman does not cheat in exams, doesn't tell lies, but that pride is in our culture, I think, in a way that it isn't in other cultures. You just kind of, well, yeah, we do it, and it's wrong, and but, um, but there can be a lack of pride that goes with that. So um, every culture has its incarnation of virtues and vices. So in summary, St. Thomas says that the general principles of the natural law are known by all people, but the conclusions and details are not known but they're able to be known by all. And that's what we mean by the natural law. Now, what's the relationship between the Ten Commandments and the natural law? Well, I've got two um, quotations from the catechism there. Um, I first quote St. Thomas himself. All the precepts of the old law, i.e. Ten Commandments and such, are so many parts of the precepts of the Decalogue. Um, so that the Ten Commandments contain all of the natural law, all of the moral law. <coughs> Reading the Catechism quotes there, the Ten Commandments belong to God's revelation. At the same time, they teach us the true humanity of man. They bring to light the essential duties and therefore indirectly the fundamental rights inherent in the nature of the human person. The Decalogue contains 
a privileged expression of the natural law. And then quoting St. Irenaeus, from the beginning, God had implanted in the heart of man the precepts of the natural law. Then he was content to remind him of them. This was the Decalogue. So the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, is reminding man of what he had written in his heart in the beginning. Next paragraph of the Catechism. The commandments of the Decalogue, although accessible to reason alone, have been revealed. To attain a complete and certain understanding of the requirements of the natural law, sinful humanity needed this revelation. St. Bonaventure, a full explanation of the commandments of the Decalogue became necessary in the state of sin because the light of reason was obscured and the will had gone astray. Now then flag up a problem. How can unaided reason discern that we must keep the Sabbath, which is the third commandment, if the Sabbath is a matter of revelation? Yes. So we've said that the Ten Commandments are knowable by reason, but the Sabbath is part of the Third Commandment, and you only know the Sabbath by supernatural revelation. Um, now, you don't have the same problem, as I've said there, for honouring your parents, or murder, or adultery, or stealing, or lying, which are more obviously accessible to unaided reason. Um, I've also noted that the prohibition against worshipping idols in first and second commandment is discernible by reason but only after reason has discerned the existence of the creator and that he's of a spiritual nature now the kind of standard solution to that dilemma of how the third commandment can be natural law and have the sabbath in it is that the law element within it the natural law element um, is the command to worship God according to our nature um, on, regular, on a regular basis. But that the specifying of it as the Sabbath uh, only comes to us by a supernatural revelation. So there is an an interplay between these two that we need to be continually remembering in how we're looking at different activities. Um, that we have a nature, um, but we are supernatural beings. And actually, my nature is fulfilled in the supernatural, in God. Now, one of the... Um, things the scholastics would sometimes talk about would be the difference between natural beatitude in God and supernatural beatitude in God. So Aristotle didn't know God in Jesus Christ, didn't know him supernaturally, but he did have a natural knowledge of God. And with that, rejoiced in knowing God at a natural level in philosophy. He contemplated, he experienced real happiness in that regard. But the fulfillment of that happiness that comes with supernatural revelation and having your end in God not just at the natural order but at the supernatural order gives you a supernatural beatitude. 
So beatitude in both cases, but are they natural order or are they supernatural order? Um, and are made for a supernatural destiny. That's what is in my nature. So I have this weird thing, I have a nature, but my nature is supernatural. It can only be completed with divine grace. In God, supernatural. Do we accept that um, you know, run anonymous Christians, or would that is he wrong there because he, the word Christian implies the supernatural? Um, yeah, I'd reject run as anonymous Christians on all kinds of levels. Um, it's it's beyond the competence of this lecture right. to, to look at them. But um, the problem with Rana is that you, you end up no longer having a distinction between nat natural and supernatural. Um, and what's the point of being a Christian? If the anonymous Christian already has in his nature a supernatural existential in his existence, just by the horizon of being that somehow is the experience of God, then what's the point? Why did Jesus come? Um, so as von Balthasar attacked Rana, what is the point of Christian witness? That the moment of Christian witness, that what does that bring? What does it change? It would seem to change nothing if we're all just anonymous Christians anyway. Whereas, if we hold the distinction between the natural and the supernatural, we can truly say that natural beatitude is real, that the Buddhist contemplating in the monastery, and obviously Buddhists, there are some Buddhists that are atheists and some Buddhists that are theists, but the Buddhist that is a theist and is contemplating God can experience a real, genuine beatitude, but of a natural that is not the same as experiencing that supernaturally in knowing Jesus Christ, accepting his lordship, having a personal relationship with him as lord and saviour, that there is something truly new that is brought in Christianity, that is the fulfilment of what was there before, but that what was there before was real. So we don't have to say that the natural beatitude that the Buddhist monk has nothing. Um, so how, how did you recognise that difference of supernatural from natural? Who's recognising it? I suppose. Well, if the Christian person yes. is, shares with his non-Christian person the capacity to, to believe yes but for whatever reason doesn't, the Christian participates and understands that it's, it's supernatural, how do you know? I suppose I'd be wary of attempting to read somebody else's soul and say, you know, otherwise you get down to that thing of, well, he's not a real Christian, but he is, because he's... I kind of so see if you're interested in other people, but if you're interested in yourself, self. you have mm, okay. um, I'd be wary of that as well, 
So you might remember when we looked at mortal sin, I quoted St. Thomas Aquinas who says that you cannot know about yourself whether you are in a state of grace because grace isn't something you can feel. You might conjecture that I'm in a state of grace because when I think of God, that doesn't bring fear, that brings a sense of happiness. When I look at my life, certain parameters are at least externally in keeping with the commandments. That I might conjecture quite reasonably that I'm in a state of grace, but I can't know that because grace is beyond what is visible. And something similar in my relationship with the Lord, that I can deceive myself that I'm a good priest. In fact, I'm the best priest in the diocese. Um, and there are only 12 of us who have <laughs> um, Whereas actually, my heart is full of pride, and grace has been dead there for a long time. Um, and I might be preaching truth, and I might even, in God's providence, be leading others to, to him, even though in my own life, um, grace isn't there. Um, so I don't think, we never know, that's why regular self-examination um, is in all of the different manifestations in spiritual tradition. That's why St. Paul says, now I know in part, but then I shall know as good as I have known. Because it's, it's, it's to be, not, not just yet. Yeah, um, uh, yeah, I think there's a number of things in that text, but okay. that would, um, I'm trying to think whether it was yesterday we had the text from St. Paul where he says, um, uh, he's talking about the judgment, and that um, I do not, um, I do not even judge myself. The Lord mm. will be my judge. Sunday. Yeah. With, with Sunday, right. Um, so that even St. Paul, who we often think of as having a fairly confident notion of his salvation, is saying that he can't judge himself, only the Lord can. Self-deceit, um, you know. We'll, but I think I think the answer to my question is we don't. Then. We don't. We don't. No, we don't. Sorry. Yes, that's a long, long way of saying we don't. Um, okay. Last page of this morning's notes, page seven. And this is slightly at the risk of complicating matters but I want to point out in the terminology that gets used um, how things can get confused, um, which also happens when people think they're attacking Catholic natural law, but actually they just are misusing terms. So, some problems here. Well, I've got some common problems in is-ought natural law discussions. First, problem one. Reasoning about your nature involves knowing your end. What's the problem? But does this mean the natural end of man or his supernatural end? Human reason can discover our natural end, but it cannot discover our supernatural end. By definition, reason cannot know what is beyond reason, what is beyond nature. Yet, we have a supernatural end. That's what we're created for. 
How can natural reason discover the manner in which we must act toward to pursue this supernatural end? Yes, you see the, the issue here? I only can know my natural end by natural powers, but I have a supernatural end. Well, so how am I supposed to know that? Well, I think that's what I was asking. Yeah. Well, partial answer to that, I've said, is unaided reason can discover God's existence and discover some of our consequences consequent duties to so unaided reason can't know everything about how to get to God but it can know some real things about how to get there second problem what do we mean by the word nature in terms of what is humanity's natural state and I've put three categories here Adam's preternatural state before the fall with his passions in harmony with the whole of his body and soul? Or do we mean fallen humanity's state, with the passions in a state of concupiscence? So when I was earlier talking about, someone talked about saying they have a homosexual inclination, well, that's an example here. of Actually, you're looking at fallen humanity, and you can think that is normative of what a fulfilled human looks like. Or do we mean redeemed humanity's state? That humanity now exists in the state of potency to fulfilment in Christ. But how can you know that apart from supernatural revelation? And if it's supernatural revelation you need, is it still natural law? Could you unpack that a bit? Which bit of it? The redeemed. The redeemed humanity's state, yeah. Well, so it's not just that I'm fallen, but actually because of Christ, human nature is different. That it exists in a state of potential for fulfillment in Christ. Um, so some writers will model their natural law on Christ. But that's problematic because Christ we only know through supernatural revelation. So in talking about human nature, what am I talking about? Fallen, Adam, or Christ? Now all three of those are real. What, what do I mean? Um, well, what's the solution here? Um, well, for the solution, I'm quoting Aristotle. It says, as Aristotle notes, not all answers need to be of the same specificity. He says, we do not look for the same degree of exactness in all areas, but the degree that accords with a given subject matter. For the carpenter restricts himself to what helps his work, but the geometer inquires into what or what sort of thing the right angle is, since he studies the truth. So basically, for my natural law reasoning, I don't need to get too fussed about what is nature and the exact distinction between natural and supernatural. That's for the systematic theology department to worry about. Um, and that is a worry for them, and they do publish books, and Rana is, is in that category. But for me, doing my natural law analysis, actually I'm able to figure out what the law is of how to live, of what's right, what's wrong, even without 
knowing the answers to those problems up there. In other words, if you know the formula, you can work out the answer, but you don't have to work out why the formula is that way. Okay, yeah. yeah. That quotation from Aristotle, where it says the, the right, what the right angle is, it doesn't mean a right angle, does it? It means the correct no, no. angle. No, he means a right angle. The actual thing itself. So, okay. so a carpenter uses a right angle yeah. to make the table. Yeah. But he doesn't need to fuss himself about the definition of what do we mean by 90 degrees. Whereas the geometer, who is defining mathematics, he really does need to know at the definition of a right angle, what is a right angle. So that the type of knowledge of a thing we need depends what we're going to do with it. And the carpenter, I'm saying, is like practical moral theologian he's concerned with doing stuff yeah. he has a real knowledge of something the same way the carpenter has a real knowledge of a right angle but it doesn't need to be the same kind of exactness that the geometer has you know, like j- jumping in a car you can drive it without having to know the principles of the internal combustion engine exactly but you do need to have knowledge of the car yeah. but not the same type of knowledge as the ca- yeah how the engine blows up Okay, Um, two final points before lunch. Problem three, reason. What do we mean by the word reason? Um, For example, Immanuel Kant falsely claims all reasoning must be a priori, i.e. purified of experience and tradition. But in reality, all reasoning occurs within an intellectual tradition. And St. Thomas would argue using experience all the time rather than wanting to purify thinking from experience. So what do we mean by the word reason? That's a problem there as well. And the last problem for the term natural is mistakenly used equivocally. I.e. the same word natural has very different meanings in different contexts, but many non-Catholic authors fail to note proper distinctions in this regard. Um, so Mary Warnock is an example of someone that way who delights in mocking natural law reasoning but she's actually just very sloppy in her use of the word natural. Um, And in the same sentence I've seen in her texts, that it gets used multiple different ways. Um, And one of the things, the last thing before lunch, with this artificial doesn't mean unnatural. So... Those are not the same thing. So a hearing aid um, is artificial, but it's not unnatural. It works with my hearing, restores my hearing to function. It is natural, um, but it is artificial. So just because something is artificial doesn't mean it's contrary to nature or is unnatural. But some things that are artificial might be, or are, um, unnatural, contrary to nature. But those are different things, being artificial, being unnatural. That leads you into this afternoon stuff. That, exactly, yeah. exactly. Okay, so we'll pause there. Thank you, Bob. All right.